Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, broadcasting live from beautiful Iowa. The thriving metropolis of the Midwest. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm out visiting family, so I am out in my home state Whence I grew up for a lot of my life in, in old Iowa. Corn mm-hmm. as high as an elephant's eye. Doug, you better believe, although not right now, not right now, because summertime, you know, planting season is done. And now the corn is growing. It's growing. It's like ankle, maybe knees, you know, get up there. So listening audience, picture Santosh with a uh, stalk of wheat in his mouth <laughs> in overalls. Yeah. I mean, let me set it, uh, let me set the scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. raises his hand to shade his eyes and gaze out mm. over his vast fields of corn. <laughs> yeah, although they're not mine, they belong to Monsanto now. <laughs> Chewing on his genetically modified wheat, thinking about this week's episode. Yep, <laughs> looks like a right good harvest of medical knowledge. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I'll tell you what. <laughs> we've gone, we've gone <laughs> Amish. <laughs> there, there are, there, we, we actually don't have Amish here. We have the Amana who are, you know, they're kind of in the same vein, a wonderful kind of minimalist society. And, and you can go to the Amana colonies and visit these wonderful folks who are very simple. Um, I might make it to just the tip, actually, Josh, at the end of this. It's not really a medical just the tip, but it's a great place to visit. I don't know, Satosh. Veering off the medical track? Mm, doesn't sound like this show. <laughs> this is... <laughs> are you talking about the last four times we discussed how Wolverine would regenerate his junk? 
Regeneration is medical. <laughs> yeah. If you recall, last week, I do believe we promised you scenes from a hat, but with medicine. Yeah, and medicine, meds from a hat. This week, we're going to refresh your memory. I previously gave Santosh a selection of five words and told him to find a way to tie any three of them to medical knowledge, discoveries, facts, or personages of interest, which sounds really impressive and also got me out of having to do research and outlining for a week. (laughs) So, Santosh, without further ado, Mm. let's get a reminder. What were your words, and uh, what's the first one you want to talk about? So, the two that I discarded, was unfortunately vomitorium and carrot. Those were the two that I did not do. So those are those are not being done. So you'll never For know ev- if those connect to medicine, listening audience. Sorry. <laughs> Ever. Like, you know, since we're your only sources. <laughs> we better be. Oh, don't, don't threaten our <laughs> listeners for like the 90th time. I'll take you out to the vomitorium and then you'll see. (laughs) So the vomitorium is actually not what everybody thinks. It is the spillway of how you get out of a stadium. So like the place under the bleachers, those long hallways and stuff, how you get out of the the stadium to the regular world. That's called a vomitorium, as in to throw out. So essentially, when you go to, say, a Cubs game at Wrigley Field... Uh, mm-hmm. you exit through vomitoriums where yes. you are the vomit being spilled forth into the streets uh, on particularly <laughs> rowdy games, a very apt comparison. It is true, yes. And it's that one's vaguely medical. Just a quick, quick little tidbit is a lot of people erroneously thought that there were things called vomitoriums where in Roman or ancient Roman times, like during Julius and Augustus and all those guys, that people would go to a bacchanal and just like eat until they couldn't eat anymore and then go to the vomitorium and spew, like throw up and then continue to eat more. And that that's not what one of these things are. No, no, no. In fact, in a vomitorium, you are the vomit. <laughs> and then the other one, which I'm not connecting to anything medical and I have no tidbits about is carrot. And as long as we're disproving medical theories, the idea that carrots improve your eyesight, uh, yes. dating back to World War II, um, was a complete and utter fabrication. And, by the Nazis! Uh, by the British to fight the Nazis. Oh, oh, oh okay, uh, okay. The idea was that the <laughs> British shut my had... smart mouth. <laughs> the British had very, very good radar that would warn them of incoming... Uh, German attacks, but they didn't want to give away that they had this uh, advanced technology. So instead, they started spreading the rumor that, oh, no, all our pilots eat wonderful carrots, and it's got this beta carotene that helps your eyesight, and that's why we have such sharp-eyed scouts and watchers. And it was complete and utter bunk. While carrots do have many vital health functions, they do absolutely nothing for your eyes. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Well, and I'm way mad at my mother for having, you know, fed me so many carrots as a child. Although it probably did me some good. But yeah, so uh, carrots were, it was propaganda. The myth that carrots improved healthy dark vision during blackouts. Uh, Vitamin A keeps your vision healthy. It doesn't improve your vision. 
So that's true. World War II propaganda. But now that we have debunked the two red herrings in that. <laughs> yes. So the three words which I chose to focus on, which you pulled out of your metaphorical and literal hat, are chainsaw, bumblebee, and snake. Okay. So, so the, uh, where are we starting? Yeah. And as usual, Josh, uh, when you have given these assignments to me in the past, um, I completely screwed it up <laughs> to start. Are you surprised? Please, please act surprised. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm usually like on point a hundred percent, aren't I? What? <laughs> okay. Josh? <laughs> little little josh <laughs> yeah i i i tried to actually mash all of those things into like a portmanteau medical thing like somehow i'd find like a bumble snake chainsaw medical thing <laughs> that would be utterly terrifying but i'm deeply <laughs> invested it would be it would be so it would be the weirdest chimera <laughs> it would be so scary. Yeah, yeah. I, I was not able to find those. I was able to find one awesome medical phenomenon that did combine sna- uh, bees, bumblebees, and honey, and snakes, and venom. So that's going to be one of my things. And the next thing is going to be just actually a history about chainsaw. Now, Josh, we have definitely covered this before. Um, I thought I had seen it, and then I remembered where I remembered it. Do you remember? That was a lot of remembers in a row, but that's okay. Do you remember the when time we covered when we fell in? Love <laughs> the time. Oh, sorry. Go on. Oh no, I thought you were. Oh, you- I was. I thought you were <laughs> wooing me. Woo! <laughs> yeah, just like Michael Jackson would do. You know what? He you know what Michael be. Jackson's pronouns are. What are his pronouns? He he. Uh, <laughs> all right, L- let's get into it. I'm talking about when we. I-, I don't even remember what season we did it. It may have been just two seasons ago. Josh, do you remember when we talked about putting together a uh, a-, a formula from old texts? A, a, a mishmash of stuff that actually helped cure staph aureus. Wasn't but there a was Viking like beer recipe times? that I definitely didn't try to homebrew? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was. So that was the Viking homebrew that we used. And I can't remember the name of that book that we used. But it turns out that there are other antibiotics hidden away in ancient texts. And this was a different homebrew or alchemy, I guess, you know, ancient physic medical textbook that put together and it actually found out that it was a MRSA killer. It was a Staph aureus killer. The name of the book, the the original book is called Bald's Leech Book. Do you remember it? Do you recall it a little bit? Of course. Who doesn't know Bald's Leech Book? (laughs) you mocking me what's going on of course not i've been playing a lot of assassin's creed uh viking valhalla (laughs) this is this is gonna be freaky that like 
you know, people who have studied history for just years and they've gotten their PhDs and everything, and then you like trump them with one round of Assassin's Creed. Hey, hey, hey. A lot of rounds of Assassin's <laughs> that's, Creed. That's true. I keep forgetting you're a completionist. And Bald's Leech Book actually takes its name from a Latin verse at the end of the second of the series of books, which begins... Yes. Uh, ready pronunciation, folks? Oh, God. Okay, fine. Bald <laughs> habit hunc librum kilkem conscribere iusit. Which meaning? Hey, yeah, I know that Latin. That was perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, meaning which means, Bald which means, yeah. owns this book, which he ordered Kield to compile. Yeah, this this is Bald's leech book. Yeah, so we we don't exactly know who Bald is, nor do we know who Kield is specifically. We we have this book from about uh we'd say maybe the the uh like the ninth century or maybe the tenth century AD, something in there. We're almost certain it came at the tenth century and you know, probably about fifty years before. Something like that. And Josh, this book is absolutely amazing. Okay. We're talking about two big volumes of external and then internal medicine. You you start off actually by describing where a lot of diseases are coming from. So each each of the chapters that comes in will have an introductory statement, okay? And then it will have description of symptoms and causative factors, dietary causes and, you know, what you can do in order to avoid its, this particular disease diagnostic details. And this is awesome, Josh, because you can actually go back and talk about, oh, you know, if you palpate the abdomen, or if you look in the eye with a light, or if you turn the person's head a particular way, um, colors and smells and all this kind of a thing. And then finally, Josh, you have just recipes, tons and tons and tons of recipes. It was basically the Etsy of the time. <laughs> it was the medical Etsy of the time. But interestingly, Josh, this was when we were, you know, kind of in the dark ages, but you were trying to revive or compile a lot of what had been passed down from the Roman Empire and the ancient Greek Empire and bring this stuff together. This book is actually a compilation and distillation of a lot of what had been written down by some ancient folks from AD fourth uh, and fifth centuries. All right, so yeah, you you have that inscription just like you're saying about in this book, Bald Habet Hunc Librum, Kild Chem Conscribere uh, Isuit, or sorry, Isuit. Sorry, that you'd said before. And that was that was the one. And followed from that, I think, is another bit of Latin which says, amongst all that I own, I treasure this the most or something like that. So it was really, really important to the person who transcribed it and potentially to Anglo-Saxon physicians at the time. I'm not right? hearing a lot of chainsaws in this book, Santosh. No, no, zero chainsaws. <laughs> I tried to bring chainsaws into this one, but this one's going to be snake and snake venom and bumblebees. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll start with there. So let me give you a little bit more of an intro. We only have one manuscript of this book. Okay. There's only one in existence so far. You can find it in the London British uh, Royal Library. 
and likely sometime around the 10th century um, or perhaps a half a century earlier is when it was compiled. Uh, and then the translator, okay, and you're going to love this, Josh, is all Oswald Cockaine. It's a good name. He, very British. <laughs> it was very British. So the, the chain of kind of knowledge that's come through here, right? Start all the way back in Greek and Roman times in the 300s, right? 300 AD. All right. So we're going to first say that you've got Orobasius, who wrote the synopsis, and uh, Euparistes, that's AD, uh, Orobasius was alive AD 320 to 403. He was the personal physician of Emperor Julian the Apostate, and he compiled a lot of the work of Galen and, you know, these heavy, heavy hitters of uh, ancient Greek medicine. And then uh, the authors Philomenus, Pelagrius and Alexander of Tralles, who were in the 6th century. Um, Alexander of Tralles wrote a gigantic book called The Twelve Books of Medicine. Um, and then finally, Marcellus Empiricus of Gaul in the 4th and 5th century wrote De Medicamentis as well as Physica Pliniae and Medicina Pliniae. And these were the primary sources of this guy, uh, Bald who was in the 9th and 10th century, and then, you know, lost in time and buried in something, and that's written down in ye olde English, right, right? And then finally, it, you know, gets lost for a long time and everything, and then Oswald Cockaine picked it up uh, in and around the Victorian era and, you know, published uh, the the thing and actually did as as well of a translation as he could, although new translations needed to be brought to light like later on. So the leech book is so called because the ancient word for doctor in Greek is Josh leech because we were known uh-huh. for drawing blood. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the that thing which was leech, which was physician, then got handed down to the uh, the, the Herodos, the Herodos, which are the the true leeches that we find nowadays. So this is why it was called the leech book. Now, full of recipes. I absolutely loved looking through this thing. It, he compiled two books, and Josh, he actually did. External medicine and internal medicine. Okay, so this is one of the first English mentions of internal medicine. It wasn't the first medical treatise in English, um, but it is the oldest to survive in a European language other than Greek or Latin. Um, but aside from the recipes, it's actually a treatise that, that tries to handle all the aspects of disease. Um, so the first book being the external type of book is concerns the head, ears, eyes, mouth, throat, skin, limbs, and joints. So pretty much everything that an internist doesn't do. And then the second book is stomach, liver, bowel, spleen, urogenital system. Dude, this was one of the first English books of internal medicine. Can't you love it? It's on my bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Well, you can't, it's yeah. on my Kindle on my bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you can get a digital facsimile. 
Very, very nice. All right. So here's our throwback to our previous episode. So Dr. Freya Harrison, who's a microbiologist, and Dr. Christina Lee, who's a historian and specialist in Anglo-Saxon history, got together and found a beautiful passage in this book that said, Work and I salve for a when, take a croplik and garlic of both equal quantities, pound them well together, take wine and bollocks gall, or sorry, bullocks gall of both equal quantities, mix with a leek, L-E-E-K, put this then into a brazen vessel, let it stand nine days in the brazen vessel, wring out through a cloth and clear it well, put it into a horn, and about nighttime, apply with a feather to the eye the best leechdom. And so uh, this microbiologist actually like made this thing. So a lot of these would actually be accompanied by like Christian prayers and stuff like that. Like you'd, you'd have to say Hail Marys after drinking this like garlic and bullocks gall mix. Josh, what's the old English for bumblebee? I love this. The old bumblebee? No, 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 no. It's Dumbledore. (laughs) Old English for Dumbledore. So when you are looking for, you know, you're looking for the word bumblebee in here, you will not find the word bumblebee. You will find honey of Dumbledore. (laughs) It's a medicine, Harry. Yeah. It is. So you, you actually have, you know, you, that you have to find, you have to find you a, a honey of Dumbledore and, and actually, you know, mix it in. And, and that is one of the strong leechdoms uh, that will cure venomous humors. I just want right. to, I'm never calling bumblebees anything but Dumbledore's name. <laughs> Okay, so let me let me start out here. So for for Dumbledore's honey, okay. So what we have to do here uh, and how you use it in order to cure yourself. So, all right. Uh, now we will say, uh, and and by the way, it has to be virgin honey. It's it's got to be very virgin. Well, how are you going to know if the bee has had sex or not? <laughs> I don't know. Basically, you don't want it to be dirty is what it actually means. But leechdoms for mistiness of the eyes. Take juice or blossoms of celandine, mingle with honey of Dumbledore's, introduce it into a brazen vessel, half warm it neatly on warm glades till it be sodden. This is a good leechdom for dimness of the eyes, meaning cataracts. For the same, mingle the juice of wild rue, dewy and bruised, mingle with equally much of filtered honey, smear the eyes with that. For mistiness of the eyes, many men, lest their eyes should suffer the disease, look into cold water and then are able to see far. Uh, That harmeth not the vision, but much wine drinking and other sweetened drinks and meats and those specially which remain in the upper region of the womb and cannot digest, but there form evil humors and thick ones, leek and colwort and all that are so austere are to be avoided. And care must be had that man not lie in bed in the day supine, 
on their back. And cold and wind and reek and dust, these things and the like to these every day are injurious to the eyes. So you see how they mashed it together? So he's got his recipes with the Dumbledore's honey and, and all these other yummy stuff. And then he tells you what not to do. Don't eat a lot of sweets, which is kind of interesting, right, Josh? He's warning against diabetes. And then the the other strange stuff is that, like, if you stare into cold water, then your eyes will clear up. That's probably like if you've been around smoke and stuff all day, you clear I mean, it out. Irons. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, don't sleep on your back. And that's just weird. <laughs> uh, maybe it was a heart failure thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, a noble craft. Take equal quantities of off balsam, which I'm not sure what it is, and a virgin honey mixed together and smear with that. So, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of smearing on the eyes with the thing. But, Josh, my very, very favorite is for baldness, okay? You can take a mixture of burned bees and willow and mix it with oil and then smear it onto the head after a bath. The salve, which probably dates back to Roman times, was based on the fact that presumably willow catkins and bumblebees are covered in, like, soft, fluffy hairs. So... You know, hmm. If you burn them and mash them into your head, then you too will have hair. That is fascinating. <laughs> I Absolutely. learned that bees are Dumbledores yeah. and that they can, you can use them in making staff. You can use them in making Viking staff ailments. I really thought you were going to go with apitherapy. Oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't, I wasn't going to go with that. I wasn't going to go with <laughs> that. So yeah, I, 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 I'm glad that I taught you about the Dumbledores. I heard the actual squee in your voice when I taught you that the ancient word for Bumblebee is Dumbledore. <laughs> uh, now, don't get me wrong, listening so. audience. Bald's Leech book is fascinating, but I have researched it a lot. So this was not new information <laughs> to me and why yeah. I was far more excited about a Harry Potter connection. <laughs> I'm so happy you love it. So okay, okay. I, before we move on to the next, so I'll yes. just reference as as a funsies. When I pulled this word, my first thought was uh, certainly apitherapy, which is the use of bee venom for medicinal purposes. Now, most of this is woo. Uh, yes. Woo, of course, yeah. meaning completely useless, non-science-backed goop crap. But mm -hmm. there are a few things in there that do hold interest for further research. Uh, one of the compounds in bee venom, melatonin, is a compound consists of 26 amino acids, and it's about 50% of the dry weight of venom, has been shown to have antiviral, antibacterial, and some anti-cancer effects in studies. Uh, but it's also the primary component responsible for the pain associated with bee stings. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there are some anti-inflammatory options where they are studying for pain gating as well as anti-infectious studies ongoing into bee venom. And of course, royal honey has its own wound healing components as well. Yeah. So substances in bee venom like melatonin and apamin may have medicinal properties. But if anyone says you can heal anything by getting repeatedly stung by bees, you should avoid them. Yes, a lot. Now, I, I love that you said that, Josh, because, you know, what's old is new. And we might actually find out with some good research in a few years that, hey, you know, this is really good for very targeted therapies. 
So I don't want to discount it entirely, but you're right. You can't just go like randomly. Stick. All right. So I'm going to stick with Bald's leech book and, and keep this part of it kind of small because I was able to find, of course, uh, cures for snake venom in Bald's leech book. And I absolutely loved what these were. And I want to give that one. And then we'll talk about just a couple of the fun stuff in Bald's leech book, which is now completely uh, disproven. While we are finding true medicinal uses from compounds in Bald's leech book, we are not putting them to their intended uses. For example, a remedy for aching feet called for leaves of elder, waybroad, and mugwort to be pounded together, applied to the feet, then bound, which, you know, sounds like, okay, maybe you're just making a, a salve like or a paste. Pain. Yeah, mm-hmm. which yeah. is great. But it also mentions that the original pain may have been caused by local elves. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it! <laughs> so you've got to take this with a grain. So we are finding true medical uses in here, but probably... Not as intense. These are the off-label uses that we are definitely that we're so. studying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, all right. So, take us to the next chapter in Ball's Leech book, uh, and all right, and talk. Give me some parcel tongue, Santosh. Let's give you some parcel tongue. So, this is uh, we we've gotten a little bit further in Ball's Leech book. Um, I'm on page one eleven of the translation, and it says against poison. Well. Let's start from the beginning. Drinks or potions and leechdoms against poison. Pound in ale, betony, marsh, wormwood, fennel, radish. Administer this to drink. Against poison, put in holy water. So you got to put it in. It's got to be like blessed holy water. Betony and small atterloth. Drink the water and eat the warts. Against any poison, eat ere the danger cometh. Radish. And clote, which is, I think, lotus, lotus flower. No man may then do thee a mischief with poison. So this is like, you know, like pre-poisoning kind of thing. All right. So moving down a little bit ways then, if an adder strike a man. Oh, here we go. If an adder strike a man or for whatever of that which cometh of shots, wash the black snail. You got to take a black snail in holy water, give to the sick to drink, and then again, rub way broad through fine, drink it in wine. For bite of a snake, put so much of betony as may weigh three peonies into three bowls full of wine and give it to the man to drink. For bite of the snake, again, sink foil rung, rung and mingled with wine is good to drink. Um, and then celandine bruised at night fasting, let the man drink three bowls full. For adder's wound, work euphorbia, atterloth, stemless carline, ami into a drink. And so, you know, basically all these wonderful herbs and stuff, just you know, mash it, mash it, and put it into the drink. And there you've got, you've got addressing how to take care of your snake bites. I absolutely love it. How effective do you suppose so, that was? I, I don't think so. <laughs> Especially if you wash the black snail and stuff, is that there's, that's a good way to get schistosomiasis. I mean, I just feel like in the time it would have taken you to prepare some of these recipes, they come back yeah. and like, well, don't need this cure anymore. 
<laughs> well, it's very, very likely because a lot of the time, especially in Europe, these snakes wouldn't really have a fatal bite. They would maybe cause a lot of pain and suffering for a while as the venom went through. And, you know, if it's a, you know, you might lose a limb if it's a coagulating type, but you didn't really have a lot of the snakes back then in Europe that would have caused the type of wounds that would kill you the way that you would find in Africa, Southeast Asia, or Australia. So, you know, it, it Lazy they weren't British as worried snakes. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder they allowed St. Patrick to drive them out of Ireland. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're just they're just little little scaredy scaredy snakes. Absolutely, yeah. So that's that's Bald's leech book. So let's see. When I first pulled the word snake yeah. out of here, um, mm-hmm. you went to England. I yes. went down to Brazil. The when I thought of snakes, I thought of the Brazilian pit viper. Bullthrops, Jararaca. I love that. Right? It's so fun to say. It (laughs) sounds like a good Brazilian snake name. Oh, no, it's Bullthrops, Jararaca. So, and this pit viper actually uh, was the discoverer, not discoverer, the source of one of the most common antihypertensive drugs, a full class of drugs known as ACE inhibitors, of which the very first one, Captopril, was derived from snake venom. Oh, cool. Okay, okay. So this, we go back just to the turn of the 19th century. It starts originally in 1898 that when Tickstedt and Bergman working in Stockholm made a discovery that injection of a certain extract when given to a dog could affect blood pressure. So this wasn't the snake one, but they called it renin. So that was the discovery of the renin angiotensin system. But mm-hmm. around 1934, uh, 19, late 1930s, 1940s, um, they worked out exactly how this renin angiotensin system worked. And I'm glossing over a lot of this because, frankly, you don't need to hear like the years of physiology lectures that Santosh and I had to go through. You just want the highlights. <laughs> yeah. um, sometime in the late 60s, they noticed that people bitten by this snake in Brazil, when I say people bitten, about half of snake bites in Brazil back then and even still today were from this specific viper and it causes a rapid drop in blood pressure along with shock hemorrhage and things like that but this rapid drop in blood pressure is what intrigued researchers and they started working with the venom to isolate the specific component that led to that drop and launched for the very first time in 1981 the very first ace inhibitor captopril was based on the compound in this ingredient. And uh, it led to a Nobel Prize where John Vane initially tested peptides from this venom on dog lungs, finding that it could block the activity of this angiotensin renal system. And then he proposed a research program to what is now Bristol-Myers Squibb. And later in 1975 was when the drug was developed. 1981, it went on the market. Uh, so it's not really prescribed today anymore. It's very rare to see it used, it being the oldest of the drugs. It's a little too, not too effective, but 
<laughs> the range within which it works is a little too broad to be safely given, uh, except yeah, for most so, cases. Yeah. So basically you hit someone with Captopril and they, you can, for some people you won't get any effect and then you build up the dose to build up the dose and they fall off a cliff, right, Josh? <laughs> they just, boom. Yeah. You know, so, so you don't have that nice play you you just you're either way too little or way too much yeah so uh there you go you got bald's leech book and the very first ace inhibitor which is used in both to control blood pressure as well as to improve microcirculation in diabetics all right so let me do a couple of bonuses and then i'll move on to chainsaw it's about dang time so yeah <laughs> you got it been waiting all so, episode yeah i know <laughs> i know i know okay so demonic possession, John. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm listening. Yeah. All right. So this being the ninth century, uh, you, you, this is called fiend sick. If you're sick with a fiend, when a devil possesses the man and controls him from within. So for this one, you've got an infusion of various plants, again, herbs, including lupins, betony, fennel, and lichen boiled together, but you have to give it to the patient to drink out of a church bell. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, if you're possessed by a demon, it only makes sense that you have to drink from a church bell. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's number one. Number two uh, bonus remedy over here is insanity. To cure a lunatic, which was the ancient term which comes from, oh, he's out to the moon like Luna – because uh, there were times when you thought, oh, looking at the moon or being in the presence of a full moon made you crazy. To cure a lunatic, try killing and skinning a mare swine, which is a purpose, a porpoise, so a sea pig. So you have to kill it and you have to skin it. And then you <laughs> it sounds so that, gross. That's crazy. You have to make a whip out of its skin and whip the patient with it and say, Soon you will be well. Amen. <laughs> so you're telling me that if you were insane and you looked yes. in this book, the doctor yes. would literally tell you, if a problem comes along, you must whip it. <laughs> if something's going wrong, you, you must whip must it. Whip. Grab a porpoise, sing the song. You must whip it. <laughs> now whip it yeah. into shape. Straight, <laughs> straight ahead. <laughs> okay, I, can, I yeah. can't. I can't do that anymore. It's so gross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, Josh, if you wanted to be a healer, right? If you wanted to transform yourself into a healer for about a year, okay, all you had to do was find a dung beetle with the dung ball. Okay, so you know the dung beetle's rolling its little dung ball. You must pick it up and hold it in your hands and say, "This is in Latin now, remedium facio ad ventris dolorum." I remedy for a bad stomach, then throw the beetle over your shoulder without looking at it. And then for the next year, if someone has an upset stomach, you, you'll be able to heal it by just laying your hands on their belly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was part of our white coat ceremony. Yeah. Did you not get a dung beetle issued to you with your cap and gown? <laughs> we, we've come a long way josh i mean mine was specially sterilized and everything so yeah yeah and and well now let's move to cutting edge medicine yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, we will. So everyone go out, read Bald's Leech book uh, from archive.org so that you can read it as much as you like. Now whip it. Whip it good. (laughs) Stop it. All right. So, Josh, I want to tell you why and how the chainsaw was originally invented. And you are going to puke. Challenge accepted. (laughs) All right. So, women had been, you know, giving birth to babies since, you know, since women had babies. It's a very common thing. And... There's a very interesting evolutionary thing that we humans have, which makes birthing babies really, really hard. We humans have giant fucking heads. And the the size of the head actually doesn't make a ton of sense for most pelvic openings, right, to actually go through, which is why a lot of the time when the baby comes out, they have a molded head. They, the head actually squishes in order to fit through the birth canal and the, uh, the exit of the pelvis down below. And Josh, this may actually be why you like big butts and you cannot lie. You other brothers because, can't deny. Yeah, the, the other brothers cannot deny that the big butts or you know birthing hips actually kind of indicate evolutionarily that the woman can have nice, healthy babies, you know, big space in the pelvis. And this is, by the way, this is not at all a true correlate, but the idea has been there in the past that, oh, you know, that the hips are nice and broad so that the baby can come right out and won't get squished in the birth canal. Oh, well, the hips don't lie. I mean, we learned that from Shakira. Well, they they can lie is the problem. It's that it's not a one-to-one correlation. But, you know, for, for a long time, there was a problem and, and a lot of women would die in childbirth and the babies would die in childbirth because they could get stuck. All right. We didn't have a C-section for babies that would arrest and labor, get stuck in there. And so for a Quite a long time, at, you know, starting about 1597, so 1600s, the way to deliver this baby was actually use <laughs> a symphysiotomy. <laughs> okay, which I know what that is. Yeah, but yeah. perhaps you should explain to those at home. Yeah, it was it was gross. So we got late 18th century. I didn't have a lot of anesthesia and hospital hygiene. Um, but yeah, <laughs> coming from 1600 down to like the you know 18th century through, what you had to do in order to get that baby to be born was to cut the mom's pelvis in half. You've got uh, you've got the pubis symphysis. Okay, so if, if so everyone, so it wasn't to cut it in half; it was to carve off sections of the pelvic bone to enlarge. Kind the of, sort of, canal. yeah. But it's kind of cut in half. If if anybody, you know, if everybody wants to feel, um, you know, you you go down from your belly button and you have, you know, your abdominal space or your pelvic space, and then you feel a bony prominence right there, you know, above where you would have your genital area. Generally speaking, where the mons pubis is, and right there, uh, your hip is actually in two pieces. It's you know, left hip and the right hip, and in the middle is a cartilaginous binding called the 
symphysis pubis or the pubic symphysis. And they said, oh, well, you know, this is the softest spot where you could cut, you know, the, the pelvis in half and it would poing, open up like a spring trap. And then you'd have a nice big hole and the soft tissues would kind of give way and the baby could come right through. And, oh, you know, by the way, the woman, you know, will have a split in half pelvis for the rest of her life. But, you know, we got her to birth the baby. <laughs> now, for those of you picturing like the giant lumberjack style or horror movie Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre, sure. That was not the chainsaw being used. No, 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 not at all, not at all. So, this was a little hand, you know, handheld thing. Um it looked about the size of like a maybe a, a butcher knife maybe kind of thing uh probably a little bit smaller and this was you know we're talking about 1597 popularized and then you know the invention of this particular chainsaw the very first one which was in the mid 1780s so josh this chainsaw was a you know a chain wrapped around a a knife-like thing and uh you, you actually <laughs> It was a chainsaw, but it wasn't an a electronic or, or like motor run chainsaw. You actually had to hand crank it. So <laughs> if uh, if anyone's got one of those like hand mixers where you turn the little like that, you imagine know, you turn instead the crank of mixing and, a cake, you're cutting yeah. through a pelvic bone. Yeah, yeah. So that runs the chain and <laughs> it's attached to the blades and everything, and you uh, so yeah yeah so you've got a quick way to zzz and just go straight <laughs> so you've got the mid 1780s you've got John Aitken and James Jeffrey and they say using a knife for a symphys- uh, was time consuming <laughs> that's the biggest problem right Josh it's time consuming uh, these women with their babies it's so long <laughs> Yeah, and and then you know, by the way, it was inaccurate and excruciatingly painful for the patient. You know, just side effects. And so, to improve the procedure, they created this device, and you had the precursor for the modern chainsaw. So it, it was a long chain with serrated teeth and a handle on each end. So this one, Josh, was actually wrapped around the pelvic bone after you'd make your incision and the doctor would just alternate pulling each handle like oh that's so disturbing yeah i know and then the movements would slice through the symphysis and then the orthopedist named Bernhall Heine improved their invention and then he came up with the osteome and this is the hand crank the serrated chain was looped around a guiding blade and allowed it to rotate so you just turn the hand crank and go around and then put the saw to your area and it it would hopefully go through and joshua this was in the time when actually your skill as a surgeon was actually like it was time-based like how fast you could get through it, like zoop, that kind of a thing. That was your skill. Totally unrelated to surgery today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So thankfully, thankfully, 
this practice, uh, by the turn of the century, you know, it came out of the 1800s into the 1900s, and you started to lose its support because we got hospital hygiene coming around and general, general anesthesia, and now you could do a C-section, which was safe without causing sepsis, you know, and wound infections and these kind of things. And, you know, recovering from a broken pelvis took a lot longer than recovering from a few stitches. So it kind of died away. Um, so, you know, this the saw was like, oh, you know, we're, we're not going to kind of need this anymore. Um, so yeah, so this is how it went from, you know, 1785 pelviotomy and then 1830 by the German orthopedist Bernard Heine. And then finally, uh, where we came all the way to 1905, where a San Francisco based logger said, Hey, I can use this if I change the scale and stuff and it's not a tiny handheld thing, but we can use this for cutting down trees. And he called it because it's wrapped around in an oval shape. It's called the endless chainsaw. And he applied for the patent in 1905. And then it went on to destroy <laughs> just, our environment. I just picture this guy being like, you know, what's exactly like a vagina. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or maybe he yeah. was watching the process and got wood. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the unfortunate history of the chainsaw, which was originally a non-mechanical, just a long chain connected by two handles, and then eventually the chain wrapped around a you know an oval knife, which was hand crank. And then, you know, brought around to the first loggers and then, you know, where they hooked it up to a, a motor and made a, a handheld electric chainsaw for trees and thankfully not for human beings anymore. Yes, it's, it's one, one by one there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Symphysiotomy was the first kind of you know, task that Aitken and Jeffrey used it for. However, I will say that um, H. Park and P.F. Moreau came along and uh, worked on excision of other disease joints, so the knee and the elbow. And actually, Josh, to this day, uh, not, you know, big old chainsaws like this one, but there are, you know, quick handy saws that are used in orthopedic procedures. Oh my gosh, remember, remember Anatomy Lab, the bone saws? They tickled so much when we put them against our arms. With the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they're bone they're saws buzzy. cut bone not skin so this was totally a safe and amusing if dramatic thing to do what do you with modern bone saws cut bones and not skin because of the way that the guards are created yes <laughs> yeah i mean it was a good med school prank it it was yeah for the newbies like when you came in as like a second year to teach yeah <laughs> you would just sit there oh 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 and then yeah. you, you know, have a bunch yeah. of fake blood. Good laugh. Laughs all around. Good times yeah. had by all. And then you'd be fired. <laughs> so that's it for this week's Scenes from a Hat. Santosh, I believe you had a just tip for us from the thriving metropolis of downtown Iowa. That's right. Uh, the whole state. Yeah. <laughs> 
there's multiple cities here. Downtown. I can't even say no because I'm like that far away from the capital here in Des Moines. Fine. So Amana Colonies are a wonderful place to visit in East Central Iowa. These are seven villages on 26,000 acres in Iowa County in East Central Iowa here in the United States for all of those of you who are outside. And you, you come down here and you visit these villages that were built and settled by German pietists. Um, who it, it looks a lot like you'd think about when you'd say like the Amish, very simple living and, you know, a, a, a calm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, not a lot of beards for these folks. These are a little bit different. They have the same skill set that you'd think about. So they have a self-sufficient local economy they take very, very little from the industrialized world at all, although they're not as austere as our friends, the Amish. So they do adhere to specialized crafting and farming and occupations that they brought with them through Europe. So things like blacksmithing and churning butter and all that fun stuff. And they use hand, horse, wind, and water power. And yeah, they'll make you furniture, clothes, goods, and you can come shopping. And this is a national historic landmark uh, since 1965. So you can come out and visit the Amana colonies and meet these wonderful people that came from uh, Germany and moved over and, uh, and founded these gorgeous colonies. And they're very, very sweet and nice people, and it's got a good uh, tourism industry. Uh, I, I have no idea why, but a refrigerator company decided to name themselves after Amana. So yeah. that's it for this week. As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with well, whatever link Santosh sends me, because no outline this week. <laughs> Our, the show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot. And it looks like, at least in the U.S., by the end of this month, most of our places will be well open. So uh, if you feel safe and you're taking precautions... Happy travels. Bye, everybody. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.